0: You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we'll, we'll pick up our reading and study today at verse 28, where we left off last week. Before we read it together, I do want to give just a brief recap because I did intend last week, as you'll recall, I intended on finishing the chapter last week before I was held up at verse 27. But last week, we came together and looked at verses 25, 26, and 27. We saw Jesus saying these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. And you'll recall there there was that indication once again of Jesus' death. And then we went on to see in verse 26 the promise of the Holy Spirit. And one of the main things we saw is that the Holy Spirit, it says that He will teach you all things. And we focused on the fact that the ministry of the Holy Spirit has to do with doctrine. has to do with you growing in your understanding of truth. If the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you're going to be learning things. And then we went on to see what exactly is it that we're supposed to be learning? That He would bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And so not only are you learning vague, generic things, but you're learning about Christ. You're learning the words that Jesus has said. And then we saw in verse 27, Jesus said, This peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And lastly, you'll remember we looked at the, pre, the peace that Jesus promises. Contrasted from the contemporary peace in the known world, the Pax Romana or peace of Rome, the Roman peace, which was only the result of coercion and force, and fear. If we don't get along, Rome's going to kill us and take us out. The kind of peace Jesus was talking about is a peace in the soul that comes from agreement. You're going to agree with God. You're going to have peace with God. Therefore, you'll know the peace of God. And that's a quick summary of where we have been last week. And then today we pick up, and at this point I'll ask you to stand with me, and we'll read together verses 28 28-31 28-31 through, 31. 28 through 31. Beginning at verse 28 of John chapter 14 You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. But because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me once again in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, o Lord, I'm struck even in the beginning now with how easy it is to get in rhythms and doing the same things week by week and saying many of the same things and for there to be a habitual kind of acting to take place. So God, I pray you deliver us from that. Deliver me. Father, though we have a structure and a pattern for how we are working through your word, I pray for fresh life from the spirit. I pray that you would move in this place in a unique and special way. Father, we trust your ordinary means of grace and we know that you're pleased to work by the regular teaching of your word. And yet, O God, we cannot benefit in the slightest apart from your spirit. Father, I pray that you would be at work in us now. Oh, God, would you please guard me from saying anything wrong about you? Protect me from misspeaking. Oh, God, that you would give me boldness, excitement and real, genuine passion for the truth. It doesn't come across as merely angry or worked up, but exulting in you and glorifying you. Seeing you. Father, I pray. That you would be with every person gathered here now, myself included, convicting us of sin and giving us a desire and a burden to know you more. Father, I pray you be glorified in all these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. At the outset, I must confess to you the same thing has happened to me the last couple of weeks in a row. Really, the last little while of. Set out early on. I'm going to have to stop deciding and putting the bulletins together until I have finished my outline, I guess. Because every week it seems that I look, and we're going to cover through the end of the chapter today. But I get into the text and it just seems that these verses are so pregnant. They're so rich with truth that you get into them and you think, oh yeah, I'll probably cover three, four, five, six verses probably today. And you get into it and they start standing out. Truth starts Grabbing a hold of you and taking your attention. And I suppose that's a a good thing. Today, Lord willing, we will cover these final four verses, 28 through 31, together. And before we do that, though, it is January 1st, 2023. Turn of another year. And in light of that, I do have some introductory thoughts that are going to be very relevant to our sermon today. Sermon's title is God's Devil. What does that have to do with year 2023? God's devil. I'm not about to present a chart to you and start giving you some wild end time prophecies. But what I am going to do is suggest to you that there's every bit of relevance to the fact that right now it is year 2023 and the world that God has made. And there is a devil in this world who has been from the beginning and that he is still working even as he was then. So the first question I have for you, in light of this new year, what is the span of a life? How long do you expect to live? 60, 70, 80 years, Eleanor, 101. How long do you expect to live? What is a lifespan? And the younger you are, the further the end of that thing looks. And some of you are thinking, I'm getting closer every day. And you are. We all are. I believe the death march, if there was a song being played at the march of those who are going to die and be damned, the song might be called something to do with presuming on tomorrow's breath. You get what I'm saying? The span of a life. How long is it? Psalm 139 verse 16 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. What's he saying? My days, the number of them. It's already fixed and determined. You're not going to change it. God already has determined how many days you're going to live. And so what is so significant about the turning of a new year? I believe there's a relationship between... The new year and why so many people feel compelled to make resolutions this time of year. You think about this. Why is it that in January of 2023, people say, well, it's a new year. It's a fresh start. I'm going to do something different. Why is that? Why do they want to make their lives better somehow? Why are we driven to examine ourselves when every year begins? And seek to improve not just our lot in life. Some people think I want to make more money. I want to do more improvements to the house. These kinds of things. I want to increase my job performance wise. And other people just want to be a better person. You want to lose weight. You want to do all these things. Why are we driven? And you could say, well, it's probably mass media. And it's probably a lot of commercialization. And wait, you know, gyms that sell their memberships for cheap this this time of year. I think there's something much more fundamental that moves us to want to improve ourselves at the end of each year and the beginning of each new year. The first answer has to do with the fact that whether or not you admit it, every passing year reminds you that you are one year closer to your last. Every year. You you can't think about time. You see, we live in a linear world that goes from point A to point B to point C right on down the road. You can't escape it. We can't even begin to think about our lives. We, you go to tell a story. And it's going to be marked out by these. this happened, then this. You see, the progression of time and the progression of time in your life is inevitable. And whenever you're faced with that, at these, these turning points, these years, when you're faced with that, it reminds us that we are closer to death. And you all can attest that as you age, as you grow older, those years pass quicker and quicker. With a growing sense of urgency, we're often consumed either subconsciously or consciously aware of an accounting that is coming at the end. The scripture teaches that the wicked flee when none pursue. We've done wrong and we know it and we want to escape it. And the closer you get to death and your awareness of death, the more aware you are, even if it's a subconscious awareness, that you're going to give an account when you die. And every new year is a reminder of that. And if you're honest, you're not going to stand when that accounting takes place. You're not going to have any goodness to put forth yourself. Again, Psalm 90 and verse 12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Number your days. Examine, look at your life and your days. See and know that your days are limited. That you don't have an infinite number of them. And your life is going to eventually wear out. Like the vapor and the mist that it is. And when we realize that. When you realize the brevity of your life. And the inevitability of death. Each new year when you realize that. It's a good and biblical practice. But there is. Another reason why we measure each new year. Why is it? Why do we call it January 1st, 2023? Do you know? The world's about 6,000 years old, not 2000. Why do we say 2023? Why not call it 6023? What's so special about year 2023? Well, we were considering last week on Christmas that it was 2,023 years ago, roughly. That the Prince of Peace came into this world to reconcile us to God. Jesus Christ came to accomplish something. That's why we say 2023. You realize this? We even have recorded in Scripture that the earliest disciples of Jesus were having a sense within them. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That they're measuring time. They're measuring history by that point. Measuring it moving forward. Why? Because this Jesus came to accomplish something. And each year that passes, there's an unfolding of everything that he accomplished as it takes place in time. There's an expectation. You you measure something. How many of your kids were counting down the days to Christmas excited for presents? Like that, there's something innate in every person. The scripture teaches us that creation itself is groaning inwardly for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? It means that when man fell in sin in the beginning... The entire creation fell with him and was cursed because of man. And creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. In other words, when the last child of God is saved, the earth's going to be destroyed and remade. A new heavens and new earth. There's a groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. And as that happens, there's an anticipation and an excitement that's built into that. Looking forward to something, looking forward to the culmination of what. Jesus Christ accomplished 2,023 years ago. And there's one last reason for you to pause. And give serious consideration to the turning of this new year. And this is it. In light of your own obvious failure. Your own sin. In light of your own death which is coming. And in light of the judgment and destruction of your soul. The question comes. How are you related to this one who we measure history by? 2023, Jesus Christ. Are you connected to the work He accomplished 2,000 years ago? That's why this is relevant. This is why this is important. Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Judgment. With those things in mind, we begin looking into our text at verse 28. Jesus said, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. The first principle we find in our text is we see that there is weight and authority that Jesus gives to Scripture. You see how Jesus is doing that here? Look at verse 28. Jesus says, He's got something he wants to communicate to these disciples here. And he starts by saying, You heard me say to you, and he quotes himself. I'm just going to give you a word to the wise. Don't quote yourself. Jesus can, though. He's, what he said was the word that the Father gave him to say. And when Jesus wants to emphasize this point to his disciple, he quotes himself. See, that's, that's important. John 14, we saw in verse 10, Jesus said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does His works. Jesus says, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. You, you. Jesus could have just repeated Himself. He didn't have to say, You heard me say to you. He could have just said, I'm going away and I'll come to you and repeated Himself, which... He does repeat himself a lot. And there's nothing wrong with that. But not only does he repeat himself here. But he makes reference to something. He'd already told them as a source of authority. And also clarity. And he proceeds to exposit and explain. What his words had to do with these disciples. Now I find this to be an example worth imitating. Jesus appealing to the scriptures as an authority. For explaining something to. Appealing to his own word as an authority. In order to communicate to his disciples, you realize you and I, we have no greater argument, no clearer explanation of the truth. We have nothing greater than the Word of God. No matter how precise even our good creeds and confessions are, no matter how clever our logic is or our illustrations, we cannot approve upon God's Word. We cannot improve upon it. You heard me say to you, this truth, I'm going away and I will come to you. is sufficient for the argument he's about to make. But it's also going to, he's going to open that up for them a little bit. The next part of verse 28, he says, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. In other words, you heard me say I'm going away and I will come to you. Now, in light of that, in light of what I told you, it should have produced something in you. But it didn't. It, that statement should have produced rejoicing in you. I'm going away and I will come to you. Now, Jesus is not saying that these disciples did not love him. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Well, they're not rejoicing at him leaving, so they must not love him, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Not at all. It's related to that, but just pay attention to this. He's saying, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. What he's doing Is he's not saying they're lost, that they're unsaved. He's specifically measuring their response to what he had said to them, specifically about his own death and ascension. He's saying, Your response in the moment of hearing about this truth is revealing that you're disconnected from your love for me as you hear me say this. This truth is not connecting with your heart. Let me try to explain it more simply. You see, I love my wife. It's a true statement, right? I love her. I love my wife. It's general. It's an overarching truth. She knows that I love her. I deeply care about her. I seek to serve her. I even enjoy spending a lot of time with her. But when she comes to me, emotionally hurt, wanting to talk, and I ignore her, I'm not loving her in that moment, am I? I'm failing to love her. If I loved her, I would listen to her. I would support and encourage her. And I say, well, I do love her. Yeah, but... I wasn't in that moment, was I? When I didn't hear her out. in the same way, these disciples, they're not responding to what Jesus is saying in the moment. They're not his revelation of his going away. Is not producing rejoicing in them, which means in the moment they're not loving him as they ought to. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Now, this ought to come as both a great encouragement to you as well as a mighty conviction, soul-searching conviction. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Here's the encouragement. The encouragement is that our salvation does not ultimately depend on us always responding rightly to the Lord and to His commands. They're not responding rightly. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. They're not rejoicing. They're not responding rightly. And our salvation is not dependent on our right response. You need to hear that. When you're not responding rightly to the Lord. It doesn't mean that you've been lost. Or that you're not saved. But it comes as a great conviction. Because as we're seeing in previous messages. Our disobedience and our wrong responses to the Lord. Are ultimately due to not loving Him. Now this is to the Christian. This is what breaks your heart, you realize this, it would be one thing if our disobedience was because, well, you just don't know enough. You're just ignorant. It would be one thing if our, if our sin and our disobedience to him was for another reason, but it's because we're not loving him. The one who is the most deserving of love and adoration. That's where the conviction comes. You see, unbelievers sin because they don't love Jesus at all. And if you find yourself not responding rightly to Him with love, then maybe you are lost. That's the constant state of the unbeliever. But for the Christian, the believer, we sin because we aren't loving Him in the moment that we do sin. We saw that in John 14, verse 15. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Now, pay attention. This is very... Dangerous. There's a razor edge line between a damning presumption on the one hand and the inevitable failure of Christian people to love the Lord as we ought on the other. On the one hand, if you say if you do not love the Lord at all, you're going to respond to your own sin by saying something like this. Well, everybody sins, you know, we all do it. That's that's a lost person's response. But if you love the Lord at all, a knowledge of your own sin and failure is going to repeatedly drive you back to the Savior. And it's going to produce deep appreciation and humility in you. You see that in our text. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. What does it cause in you when you realize I haven't loved the Lord? I haven't loved Him as I should have loved Him. The lost person leaves disinterested. If you love the Lord, your sin and failure will drive you back to Christ. The next thing we read in verse 28, he says, You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now here we begin to see why they should have rejoiced at his going away and coming to them. At first glance, do you blame them for not rejoicing? Jesus said, I'm not going to be with you anymore. Do you expect them to rejoice at that? Is that something that should have made them happy? If you were to find out you're going to lose the presence of the one you love the most, are you going to rejoice at that? It doesn't make sense that they should have rejoiced at hearing this. But notice this. Jesus is continuing to reveal something both to them and to us about his character. What does Jesus reveal to you that? You know, he could have just simply rebuked them for not rejoicing. He could have just said, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Rejoice, fellows. Why aren't you rejoicing? That could have been all he said. But instead, he goes past that. He goes beyond that. Now, Jesus explains it to them. This is why you should have been rejoicing. You, you, you see how important this is? Jesus is not merely interested in an external show. He doesn't just want them to rejoice, but he wants them to understand why they're rejoicing. And the same thing is true for us today. We come in here, we sing these beautiful songs and we could sing like the most beautiful choir on the planet. But is it in here? Do you understand the words that you're singing? Do they make sense to your soul? You see, the Lord's not the least bit interested in passionate praise or celebration. If, to use a phrase from John Curran, our hearts aren't dancing while we do. If you're not moved by what you're saying. Jesus wants them to understand. Matthew fifteen eight, This prophecy fulfilled. Well, did Isaiah speak of this people when he said this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He doesn't just want honor on the lips, but in the heart. So he explains it to them. Let that never be said of us. Jesus shows us that His character is such that He's graciously and tenderly interested in growing our understanding of truth. Didn't we just see that last week? When the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Helper comes, He's going to teach you all things. He's going to increase your understanding. Why? So you can win theological debates, so that you can show how smart you are with the theological ignorant people in the world. He's going to teach you all things so that you can love the one you're learning about. That's the problem. You're not rejoicing because you're not loving me. I'm going to teach you something that helps you to love me. You see what he's saying here? Isn't that good? I want to grow your understanding. Because as your understanding by the Spirit grows, your love will grow. He says, Because I'm going to the Father. This is the why. This is why you should have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now to be clear, what does He mean by this going away? It's a reference as we're seeing over and over again to both His death and His ascension back to the Father. Now remember this, is all coming from the context of Jesus ministering to His disciples and their future broken hearts in light of Him departing from them. That's what we've been seeing, isn't it? I'm not going to be with you and it's not going to be okay with you, so I'm telling you things to help you to get through it. That's what He's saying to them. And as I mentioned before, why why should they rejoice at His leave? Let me ask you this question. Probing application. Do any of you, do you have any notion within your head that, man, it sure would be nice to be with those disciples in the New Testament? Sure, it would have been nice to know Jesus physically. It would have been nice to hear what His voice sounded like as a man. To get to actually see Him, to get to give Him a hug. You think, man, that would have been so special if I could have done that. I admit, it's an intriguing idea. Something curiosity abounds at what that might have been like. But let me just suggest something to you. Jesus says that they should have rejoiced. Not primarily during his physical presence, but in his absence. Do you catch that? You ought to have rejoiced that I'm going away. If it was better that he stayed there with them in the physical condition that they were in together, then why could he say that you should rejoice? If things are getting worse, why rejoice? Because they're not getting worse, they're improving. There's an advantage, there's something better. We have an advantage over these disciples who are face-to-face with the physical Christ in John 14. Did you know that? He says you should have rejoiced. The first reason they should have rejoiced has to do with being in the presence of the Father. You answer me this. Is there anything that we can desire greater for any person that we love than that they would know the presence of the Father. Is there anything that you could want more? Parents, you know, nothing more you could want for your children than that they know the Lord and are walking with Him. Nothing more than that. And your dearest friends, even your worst enemies, there's nothing you could want more than that they know the presence of the Father. And let me suggest to you that we are wrong if our primary motivation for evangelism is to keep people out of hell. That's not the primary motivation for evangelists. Certainly a legitimate motivation, but not the primary. You see, when we look around this world, rocks, trees, and water, hills, even animals, your little puppy dog, I'm sorry, but they're not going to go to heaven or hell. They're just not going to exist. And it's no advantage to them. You see, the greatest need of the lost person is to know the presence of the love of God, to be with the father and experiencing his love. It's not. See, there's the negative reality that if they're not in the presence of God in this way, that they will be under torment. They will be under judgment. That's true. But don't you see, we don't have just talking this week with someone. We don't have a high enough view of the glory and wonder of being in the presence of God. If we saw that, then our perhaps our our encouragement to go and share this truth with other people would be grown. You know, we have a positive message. There's a negative reality. I don't imagine hell is going to be any fun. And it's a horrifying thing, and used in the scriptures to warn people: flee the wrath to come, it says. But flee to what? Flee to where? Where do you flee? To God. what we saw in the Sunday school from David's expressions of his own guilt. I'm crying out to you because of your character, God. I'm coming to you in the midst of my affliction. It's coming to God, fleeing to God. So what I'm saying is they're not rejoicing because they don't have a high enough appreciation for what it means for Jesus to be with the father once again. They don't see. Don't you see how much better it's going to be for me to be in the presence of my father? these disciples should have rejoiced at His departure because it meant that He was going back to the Father. Jesus is going on to pray this in John 17, 5. This is His high priestly prayer and this is what He says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Jesus had a glory Now, he's unique in this. We, even as much as we're in Christ and united with him, there's still something unique about Him, And I can't, I don't have time to flesh out all that that means right here and now. Just suffice it to say this. There's a uniqueness to this Jesus. And he had a glory with the father before the world existed that we cannot comprehend. And these disciples, they're not seeing that Jesus, when he goes to the cross, when he goes Back to the right hand of the Father after His resurrection. He's going to receive this eternal glory. A further application to us. Is that we ought to rejoice at the death of those who die in the Lord. There is a distinction between Jesus and other people. Even believers. But but hear me. Are you prepared to rejoice when another Christian dies? This is hard hitting, isn't it? Can you rejoice? Now, even in study, I was struck by this. I thought, what a profound thought. Surely I can be comforted when I know that they were a believer. I have a strong hope that they trusted Christ. Surely I can be comforted by that. We don't mourn as others mourn and there's a comfort in that. But to rejoice? Can I rejoice? The Scripture teaches us there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents the 99 that need no repentance. Well, what do you suppose that there should not be more rejoicing in the church over one believer who dies and is immediately and gloriously in the presence of the Lord? This is worthy of our rejoicing, our rejoicing. You know, I, I think when it says we don't mourn as others mourn, that there, it's, it's appropriate and right. And I don't mean it's flippant. I don't mean that it's without respect and reverence and sober. But there should be a, a sense of excitement any time a believer goes to be with their God. A funeral service of a believer in this church ought to stand out over and against that of the world. We have an expected hope. And that's the end we're hoping for is the presence of God. To look at one who's gone before us and not say with triumph and victory, they've made it. That's where they got there. They got there before me. Man. Someday I will too. There should be an excitement in us. A rejoicing in this. Furthermore, he says, For the Father is greater than I. The second reason these disciples should have rejoiced has to do with the benefit that Christ's departure would bring to them. You see, these disciples, they're rejoicing at Jesus' physical presence, but they don't realize the benefit that awaited them. We're going on in a couple of chapters in John 16 and verse 7 to read Jesus saying this. Nevertheless, I tell you, the truth it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. <clears throat> now, are you still left wondering if these disciples had an advantage on you because they knew the physical presence of Jesus as a man upon the earth? Would you prefer to trade places with them? in order to know that presence. Let me suggest to you that we do have an an advantage indeed. John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus interacting with Thomas. You'll recall Thomas didn't see Jesus. He doubted. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. The next time they gather, he's there. Jesus says, Behold, my hands and my side. Thomas looks and says, My Lord and my God. Jesus says, verse 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's a pronouncement of blessedness and blessing and wonder on those who don't have this physical vision and yet they believe. This is amazing, isn't it? Now, even in this context, he's talking about salvation, but even still. Now, the good thing is Thomas would go on in a few days to experience that as the spirits poured out. But at this point, there was still yet a difference. When Jesus says that the Father is greater than I, what does it mean? What is the advantage? When Jesus says the Father is greater than I, He's not saying that He as the second person of the Trinity was less than God. When Jesus says the Father is greater than I, He's not saying, okay, here's the Father as far as value and and Godhood, and here's here's Me. He's bigger, better, greater, more eternal. That's not what He's saying. He's saying something different. He's saying... As a man in his incarnate state, in his humanity upon the earth, that there was something about God, not just the Father, but the triune God. There's something to be done and to be had on the benefit of these disciples that could not be had apart from him returning to the Father. And I don't know what all that means. It'll make your head explode. You get into this too deep. But I know this. There's an advantage You see there, He, what he's saying is that their experience with him physically paled in comparison to being inhabited by the Godhead through the Spirit. You recall this language we're looking at recently? All this idea that whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him, manifest myself to him. All this God, the Father, the Spirit, the Son, all at work and there's a relationship and we know them and they're in us and we're in them, it's... It's insane. It's it's wild. You can't comprehend it. And that's what's promised here. It's not just knowing as amazing as it surely was to be in the presence of the Son of God physically. There's an experience that goes beyond that. Don't take my word for it. Jesus said it's to your advantage. Ephesians one and verse three, this is to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These disciples should have rejoiced because his departure physically meant that this unbelievable promise of experiential union with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would come to pass. We ought to rejoice today because no spiritual blessing is withheld from us in Christ. Here's an advantage. No spiritual blessing. Full unity with the Father, Son and Spirit. That they didn't know in the same way. As long as he was only there physically. They should have rejoiced. We move on to verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place. So that when it does take place. You may believe. Now this is the point in the message. When it may begin to get a little bit ominous. God's devil, the title of the message. You see, at this point in the message, I want to ask you, what do you think Jesus means in verse 29? By it. And now I have told you before, it takes place, so that when it it does take place, you may believe. Well, he's obviously referring to his departure, which he's been telling them about, but specifically, he's talking about his cross here. He wants these disciples to know prior to his death, That His death was intentional. It was purposeful. It's not a mistake. He came into the world in order to die. Now can you imagine these disciples. Their utter confusion and despair at His death. Again, we touched on this last week. We don't have to imagine. We looked at some examples. Like Cleopas and his friend on the Emmaus Road. They're devastated by His death. It's over. It's up. We thought it had been He. Well... They're hopelessly cast now. And it's almost as if every purpose of God that they had hoped for in Christ had been dashed in an instant when He died on the cross. Here's the question. What what rock, what stability, what anchor is Jesus giving them here for them to hold fast to when they're facing His death and their confusion and their fear? What does He tell them? And now I have told you You see, it's the word of Christ himself that keeps us fast in adversity. That's what's coming. I'm telling you now so that when it takes place, you'll believe, you'll know, you'll understand. And the same is true for us. There's no greater peace or calm that a Christian can know when you face calamity than to rest upon these promises that God has given you. Look with me at verse 30. He continues this thought. It. What's the it here? That I've told you before. It takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Verse 30 says, And I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. The first thing in this verse we see is that there is weight. Jesus We've still got a number of chapters left in John. And then after Jesus, after he's crucified and buried and resurrects from the dead, he spends another 40 days with them. He's going on talking to them. He's got more to say. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to say things to them. And he commissions apostles, messengers to say things to others. This Jesus is not done speaking. What does he mean by this? I'll no longer talk much with you. Well... He's indicating that His ministry to them in this world is coming to an end soon. And that the end He's referring to is a reference to His death. It's His cross. And there's something interesting for you to notice here. It's the cause that Jesus gives them. Why is His ministry coming to an end on the earth? Why is He not going to talk much with them any longer? Why is He going to die? Well, He says, for the ruler of this world is coming. What do you think that means? The ruler of this world is coming. And the result of his coming is I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm dying. I'm departing. I'm going. Because this ruler is coming. The devil is counted by Jesus Christ as being responsible for his death. Now this isn't a new concept, you see. Genesis 3.15, you'll recall, the promise in the garden after the fall... I will put enmity between you and the woman. God speaking to the serpent there. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent is promised to bruise the heel of this son, of this offspring. Jesus is the offspring. The serpent bruises the offspring. Now, this is really significant. The death of Jesus on the cross was the fulfillment of that promise. The devil wanted Jesus to die. Now before we consider the rest of this context, consider that for a moment when applied to the rest of mankind. The devil, Satan Lucifer, wanted Jesus dead, the Son of God dead. Think about this. John :844, do you recall this? Jesus told the Jews, you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. The devil's been a murderer from the beginning. That's his character. That's his M.O. His death comes when he comes. He came to kill Jesus, but not only Jesus. We saw in John 10, verse 10, the thief. Same reference, same devil. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Not only, not only is every single death that occurs a testimony of God's justice against sin, even for Christians, we still are going to die physically, though our souls and eternity secure in Christ because of sin. It's a testimony of God's justice every time a death occurs and still every death is a testimony of the work of the devil. The devil is described in the scriptures by Jesus as a strong man. He's described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 as one who's got a blindfold over people's faces to keep them from seeing God. And this devil, he takes this whole of humanity and he's marching them straight towards death and towards hell and he's going with them. Just an important reminder to you, people think the devil runs hell. He's going to be poking people with a pitchfork or something. He's getting thrown in there as well. He's going to be destroyed in the lake of fire as well. Even as every unconverted sinner will. And this devil sought to do the same thing we're describing to the Son of God. you remember from John 13? During supper... When the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. What for? Why should Simon, why should Judas betray Jesus? So that he would be hung on the cross and killed. So that he would die. It was the devil's purpose that Jesus died. Now just hold this thought for a second. How much mischief do you think in this world, in this nation, in this town, is a result of the devil's work? I'm not talking about looking for him under every blade of grass and trying to excuse your own sin. I'm saying how much evil do you think is currently involved in this world because of the devil who seeks as a roaring lion someone to devour? He's actively doing things. Can you imagine? The momentary, and I say momentary, the momentary pride, the momentary arrogance and boasting of the devil. As Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was ridiculed and beaten and then nailed to the cross? Do you think Satan thought, I've won? You think he gloated over the death of the Son of God? What about Jesus' disciples? When they see Jesus hanging on the cross, do they think, He told us the ruler of this world's coming and look at him dying there? He must have come. He must have come and accomplished something against Jesus. Well, Jesus says in the last part of verse 30, He has no claim on me. He has no claim on me. See, this devil, though he was a murderer, though the devil wanted Jesus dead, and though Jesus died, the devil had no claim on him. How does that make any sense at all? How can Jesus say, He wants me dead, I'm about to die, but He doesn't have a claim on me? What does He mean? He wants His disciples to know that everything seems lost And it looks like it's all over and all hope's lost. And He's still in perfect control doing exactly, exactly what He came to do. That's what He's telling these disciples. You recall as well from John 10, verse 18, Jesus says this, No one takes it from Me. Speaking of His life, speaking of Him dying, He says, no one takes it from Me, but I lay it down of My own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. You remember when we worked through that text, our primary application is that the Romans didn't have authority over Jesus' life. The Jews, the rulers of the Jews didn't have authority over his life. No one could kill him. The devil had no authority over his life. He had no claim on him. He had no claim on him because this Jesus had never sinned. He didn't deserve to die. And further still, death could not keep him. This Jesus was not dying merely as a result of the devil's scheming. There's someone with greater authority than this devil. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ were both ordained by God the Father. And every wicked scheme, every scheme of Satan is ultimately serving To fulfill the plan and purpose of God. you believe that? Everything the devil does is fulfilling God's purpose in the world. God's not the author of sin. He doesn't invent or create evil. But He is sovereign. Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. You understand the meaning here? I want to read a a quote for you at this time on the front of the bulletin to show you the magnitude of what we're saying here. This is so incredibly significant that we get this. By A.W. Pink. A longer than normal quote, but stay with this. Can you trust anything God ever tells you in this book? This is the answer. Pink asks, Has God foreordained everything that comes to pass? Has He decreed that what is... Was to have been in the final analysis? This is only another way of asking. Is God now governing the world and everyone and everything in it? If God is governing the world, then is he governing it according to a definite purpose or aimlessly and at random? If he is governing it according to some purpose, then when was that purpose made? Is God continually changing his purpose and making a new one every day? Or was His purpose formed from the beginning? Are God's actions like ours regulated by change of circumstance? Or are they out the outcome of His eternal purpose? If God formed a purpose before man was created, then is that purpose going to be executed according to His original designs? And is He now working toward that end? What saith the Scriptures? They declare that God is one who worketh all things, after the counsel of his own will. Including the devil. The devil is evil. He's wicked. He does wicked things. And yet God is mightier. He's over and above. He's sovereign over the devil. And even in our text we're saying. The devil has a purpose that Jesus died. We're going on to see the father has a purpose. I'm obeying my father. This is what he wants me to do. And he's using the devil. And Judas. And other evil men to bring it about. God is above these forces of evil in the land. And he has a purpose in these things. The devil's purpose in Jesus' death was evil. What do you suppose Jesus' purpose in dying was? Our last verse, verse 31, he says, But I do. This ruler of this world who has a desire that I die, he's coming to end my ministry, my life. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go. We see clearly that Jesus' purpose in going to the cross was to obey his Father. God sent his Son into the world to seek and save the lost. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to die whoever believes may not perish but have everlasting life. This is the Father's plan that Jesus died. And Satan's a part of it somehow. And He's meaning it for evil and God's meaning it for good. This is hopeful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation of people. It's evil out there. All of us who are Christians can say, it's evil in here. But God, what was Jesus' purpose? See, unlike you and I, Jesus always did what was pleasing to his father. He, we read in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what was Jesus? What was God's purpose in his son dying? We started this message by considering how appropriate it is, how fitting and right it is when we see a passing year and we realize I'm inching closer and closer to eternity. That you ask yourself, what's the relevance of the Son of God coming into the world? What has it had upon you and your sinful soul? What, how are you related to this truth? And what hope can you possibly have in a crucified Savior? Who, according to everything we can see externally, according to the flesh, he was defeated and killed by the devil. Ruler of this world came. Jesus died. What hope is there in these things? Colossians 2 verses 14 and 15. Here is the hope. Here is the hope. How is it that he does not have a claim on him? A hold on him? Says by canceling the record of debt that stood against us stood against who there's a debt. There's a record of debt. There's a spiritual debt against us because of our sin. He's canceled it with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus took your sin upon himself, and it's as though he took and wielded the hammer himself that drove the nails. Jesus nailing this sin of yours to His own cross. And notice the next part. He disarmed rulers and authorities. Now those rulers and authorities surely includes the Jews and the Romans, but that's not the primary emphasis here. These rulers and authorities talking about principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is talking about the devil and his demons. He's disarmed the devil and put them to an open shame. By triumphing over them in Him. Go back to the garden again. The promise is given. There's an offspring. There's a seed. You're going to bruise His heel, but He's going to crush your head. And the glory of the Gospel is that they happen at one and the same time. He's put into an open shame. Shame. Jesus hanging, dying on the cross. Son of God crucified. Devil's one. He's crushed and killed. He's destroyed. He's defeated as Jesus himself takes on our sin upon himself. That's how he put him to an open shame. That's how he saves his people. That's the significance of 2023. And each new year is to ask, how are you related to this Jesus who came according to this perfect and predestined plan of the father to save his people? There's nothing more to say to you than this, to repent and believe this gospel message, to believe this message. And if you do, there will be rejoicing in you. You will be able to rejoice even as they're rejoicing. Praise God that this Jesus did as the father commanded him. that He might give us a righteousness that we don't have. My closing thought with you before we prepare to take the Lord's Supper is this. I mentioned resolutions in the beginning. If there is a resolution, a commitment that you ought to be making, whether you're a Christian or not, is this. Resolved. To trust Jesus Christ and cling to Him as your soul's only hope. <clears throat> Bow with me in prayer, Heavenly Father, O Lord, I thank you for your sovereign goodness. I thank you that you cannot be defeated by the enemies of our souls, and that you have accomplished this perfect salvation in your perfect wisdom, Father. Please. Help us to love and rejoice in the glory of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The horror of horrors that it is and the wonder of wonders that it is. O God, I ask that You would be with us through this day and this time together preparing work in us and in our hearts. O God, a resolve to follow You more faithfully, to seek You more diligently, to love You more earnestly. O God, not... That we might win your favor. But because of Christ and your grace. We have been given your favor. God please. Do these things for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen.